0: Welcome to Squawk. My name's Luke. I am your host, and my guest again this week is Dr. Brian Nixon. And if you haven't tuned into our previous podcast, definitely encourage you to do so. We've covered some really interesting topics. Can women be pastors? Who's the woman in Revelation 12? And I won't name them all for you, but you need to go check them out. Because what we do, no prep, we come in, we roll a die, and we attack any of the questions That have been given to us by students and go from there so i'm going to go ahead and do our
1: well luke you know we've already pointed out that you know rolling the die is is kind of like an old testament thing of course you know the (laughs) apostles did uh, something similar when they were choosing the replacement for judas right but i've noticed this week that you brought in a blue die because in times past it's been a purple die which Ah. i see you also have but you brought in a blue die. So, so what gives?
0: Oh, that's a great question. So there, there's a little story here. And I know we've mentioned how handsome the die is. It's got sort of a, a differentiated surface or a wrap to it. And it's not quite iridescent, but almost. I went to try to find a regular six-sided die. And I never knew how difficult it was actually going to be. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'll just run down to the dollar store. So I left. I go down to the dollar store. We don't sell any dice. And I said, you don't. Selling dice at the dollar store? I thought, wow, they must, maybe they went up in price. And so I went around and I grabbed a little game that said it had a die in it. And I thought, haha, you know, they don't sell them, but I found a solution. And so I take off and I, I'm opening the box while I'm driving. Probably not a great practice, but <laughs> it was a small box. There was no die in it, even though it said there was. Really? And I thought, okay, this is weird. So They had told me, well, go up to the gas station. They'll have dice because, you know, they have different game supplies. So I go up to the gas station, no dice, literally and figuratively. Yeah. (laughs) And so they said, well, go to Walgreens. So I go to Walgreens. At this point, I'm, you know, been out on the town for 45 minutes. I'm empty handed. And I go to Walgreens and again, no dice. And I said, what is going on here? And the lady behind the counter, she says, people have been stealing dice really i said why (laughs) out of all the things you could steal in a store why would you steal dice i i mean not that stealing of any kind is good but you know you would think there'd be some type of so there was some kind of conspiracy that was happening i was convinced of and so even though i wanted a six-sided die so that my questions rotation would be smaller right I found these. These were the only dice that they had at the store, and it was actually for a game where one team would roll two purple dice and one team would roll two blue dice. Okay. And when I looked at the dice, I thought, you know, those are really nice. And I had plenty of questions, and so I just made my list into 12 questions. And now we roll the dodecahedron.
1: I love that. So the moral of the story is people are stealing die. Please stop <laughs> stealing die so Luke could find them. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. And it is a nice looking die. And so I'm excited to see what the die is going to do for us.
0: Yes, sir. And here we go.
1: Oh, a one. It is oh, a one. Boy. The blue die has given us the one.
0: This is going to be an interesting one, Brian. Why does God seem different in the Old Testament and the New?
1: Mm, good question. That, that, question. that is a great, great question. And As we normally do, we kind of start with a big, big picture approach, or we develop some of the issues that the question precipitates. But in this case, you know, this isn't a new question. This question, Luke, has been around for a long time, since the early church. Yes. Let me give you an example. Early Gnostic leaders, such as Marcion, who was one of the the lead uh, Gnostic thinkers, post-apostles, he also asked that question. Right. And he said, boy, the Old Testament seems to have this mean, vindictive God And the New Testament seems to be, you know, a God of love and patience and kindness and all this. So he concluded wrongly, of course, that they were two different gods Mm. and that the true God was the God of the New Testament. And therefore he bent over backwards trying to rid, you know, his version of Christianity from the Old Testament God. He got rid of all Old Testament references. He, anytime the Apostle Paul mentioned anything from the Old Testament, he edited stuff of that nature out, and he just chose certain texts from the Bible that resonated with his understanding of the New Testament God. Right. And, and, and again, Marcin was just one. Many people have said that over and over. But the reality is God, the one true God, is unchanging. He's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I think what's inherent in this question is Why does the New Testament God, a.k.a. as portrayed by Jesus, seem diametrically opposed to the God of the Old Testament? So let me give you a clear example that that has caused people to try to draw up a difference. So I've heard some people say, well, you know, in the New Testament, you know, we're called to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile, you know, give them our cloak and all of this. But in the Old Testament, you know, it was really more an eye for an eye. And, you know, God, the Father in the Old Testament would basically tell his people to go kill and slaughter and maim and, you know, so on and so forth. So how do you reconcile? And these are really deep, questions as a matter of fact a few years ago there's been you know is god a moral monster or something of that mm. nature Someone saying you know this old testament god you know he just seems so different so i think it's first a question of understanding and a proper hermeneutic secondly it's i think also a theological question and then third i think it is a biblical question you know of of how we understand the unfolding nature of the Bible. And hermeneutically, how do we interpret those those passages in the Old Testament that really like, wow, okay, that seems really opposed to, to what we're learning. And, and what we find generally a lot of times, particularly with the person of Christ, is he will either give us the proper interpretation. He'll say, well, you've heard it said, and he you would you know, list the scripture text. And then he says, but I say unto you, so what he's doing is he's giving us a proper what we would call today a Christian understanding of the text. So a new hermeneutic, or not a new hermeneutic, but a, a properly defined hermeneutic, and and then then he would explain you know things. We would also find um, elements of let's say misunderstanding during the religious leaders of Jesus's day, where you know let's use the Sabbath as an example. People would say well, you can't do this and this and this on the Sabbath, quote a scripture or or a a law, and then Jesus would correct their interpretation. So we find that. And of course, in a short half hour time, Luke, we don't have time to deal with every single passage uh, in in the Old Testament. But I think the principles are that, you know, we need a proper hermeneutic. We need to understand it. We need to understand it through the lens of Christ, how he re interpreted or helped us understand. The best way I could think of it, um, and others have used this analogy, but you know, when God, when God created the heavens and the earth and saw it was good, Genesis 1. So God is the necessary being. He's the creator, the uncaused cause. And he said, I want you to do my will. And my will, you know, is to live in fellowship and harmony and peace and, you know, enjoy the, the goodness I created. Well, from that moment on, human beings started to veer off this road, you know, right. and, and as they went, you know, it started with the fall of Adam and Eve, and then it just kept waving off, waving off, waving off, you know, through thousands and thousands of years where it's way off the road. And then Jesus comes, and at that, for such a time as this, as the apostle Paul would say, and say, hey guys, I'm calling you back onto this road. This is the road that God intended. Let's get off these little tangents and highways and byways you found yourself over here and let's get back on the road and then let's journey down this road together as, you know, as Jesus is Lord, he's the Messiah, the chosen one. And he is leading us on this road, but in doing so, he's given us corrective to either man-made stuff or poorly understood scriptural text. So I think we have to view some of these um, segments in light of, of a Christian understanding. So with that, that's again, that's a big picture text, but I'll let you you weigh in as well.
0: I, I love that you went right to Marcion, because as far as we know, this was something that he, he did actually confront the church with, we're talking second century, late second century, and wrote a book actually that doesn't appear to be extant anymore called the antithesis or the antitheses, where he brought up one of the arguments that we find from him preserved in Tertullian, mm-hmm. who defended against the attack that was coming toward the church, was that in particular. I love that idea. He actually even postulated, from what I understand, that the God of the Old Testament was inferior, mm-hmm. and that Christ, to parse out a little bit more, he didn't accept any of the gospels except for Luke, because Luke was a follower of Paul traditionally and only accepted 10 of Paul's epistles. If it was a thing, I don't want to be anachronistic, but that he was potentially even anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. He felt that the Jewish influence in scriptures was a corrupting influence. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you have this sort of dualism that's even older than Marcion, that mm-hmm. he must have been into, whether it was Manichaeism or- Zoroastrianism. Or was, exactly. Um, and you find this same thing continuing even now into, into the church where you find this question is still resonating with people because of the differences. So what I want to put out there, and I think you, you laid it out so well, Brian, and talking about how that the witness of Christ, particularly as he handles the Old Testament truth, Mm-hmm. is so important for our current perspective, not because it gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card for all the things that are potentially done in the name of God, but if we accept Christ as who he claims to be, then we must accept his interpretation as the proper vehicle mm-hmm. for the things that are happening in the Old Testament. So I'm going to throw this out there because this does sort of touch on the problem of evil. I don't want to dig into that so much, but I think that that's sort of in the background and the miasma of this question. And it has to do with, and you mentioned this, the morality of God. There's a statement I find really, really good. God does not do things because they're right. They're right because God does them. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing for people to get their mind around, particularly when they see things happening in mass to large groups of people, etc. And so there's not a way to reinterpret that type of activity out of existence. Mm -hmm. But if there is a proper way to interpret it, instead of the knee-jerk reaction, I would say it has something to do with the fact that God is acting with a data set that people do not possess. Exactly right. And even if we did, we would not be able to handle it. Like we're talking about omniscience and knowing the end from the very beginning. So in that I think that's an important part of the discussion. Also, culture. So th- those two things, if we were to look a little bit more deeply into what can we know of the data set that God's working with? Mm-hmm. How does that make him make decisions differently mm-hmm. than we would? And how does that sort of remove him from our ability to judge his actions with condemnation? And then also, let's talk a little bit about the cultural side where I don't want to say that it was pragmatic, but there were some allowances that God seems to have made based on what was generally happening in the world during the time that He was issuing commands. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I love that Luke because you know we both agree completely, wholeheartedly that you know Christ is the lens. You know, He's He is the hermeneutic principle. You know, upon which we should approach um, our understanding of of both New Testament and Old Testament. And secondly you you touched upon what i said at the beginning the theological elements and there are theological elements and you said you can't get away from the you know the idea of the problem of evil and and really you you know for me in that case it it comes down to a providential perspective mm-hmm. you know god's ways are not our ways god sees things yeah. that we don't or can't understand he understands the heart he understands the actions and i love what paul says in romans you know all things work together for good and from God's perspective, you know, that, that word work together is sunegro is in, in Greek. And it carries the idea of, of a mountain and all these different streams, you know, mm. rivers coming off the mountain and coming into a larger body of water, a.k.a. a river. And then the water runs into a larger body of water, maybe a lake. And then it goes into even a larger body of water an ocean. So all these little riverettes, all these little streams and tributaries are flowing into something. And we may be on this mountain just in this little stream, and we're going, boy, you know, this stream, and we have judgments and preconceived ideas and interpretations of what's going on. But God's standing back, you know, I'm using humanistic terms here, but he's standing back and he's looking at it going, "I, I see your tributary, but I also see the river it's going into, and I see the lake, and then I see the ocean. God understands and sees the entire you know picture so he's working all things together for his good so part of the theological um i think principle that you brought out is we've got to stand back and there's got to be a humble hermeneutic where we go listen i don't i don't have all the answers to this i could give some you know insight into it but ultimately i know god does i i know the lord has that you know divine perspective, that providential perspective where he's doing it. So I I think you're right. A lot of times we're so quick, God, why'd you do this? Why'd you, you know, do this? And at times those are legitimate questions, questions of, of, of fear, questions of, you know, um, trepidation, you know, of unknowing, um, and and what have you. So they're they're legitimate questions, but ultimately we're going to have to stop ourselves and say, well, well, as Christians, we believe that God's working all this together. So the biblical normative is that Christ is the lens. The theological normative, which you implied, is that God is working things together. He has a divine perspective, a providential perspective that we don't have. So then the third thing I brought up was then how do we go back it, you know, and apply a Christian hermeneutic that Jesus sets right. with the theological understanding, and how do we go back and apply that hermeneutic to the Old Testament? And as we've pointed out, Marcion, who was a, a Gnostic, it was an, a, it was a, not an Orthodox Christian understanding, did in the early church, and people have been dealing with this for two thousand years and trying to make sense of it. And I'm not here to push one view or another. You know, one of the people that inspired me early on in my ministry was a fellow by the name of Werner Deller. He was a philosopher at, at Laverne College, and and he wrote this book, Genesis to Revelation, you know, looking at war and peace. And And I would encourage people to read it and, you know, come to their own conclusions. But one of his thoughts was up to a certain point in the Old Testament— you had that it was it was a theocracy. It was God led. God led it. So when God is leading something, we have to put in place that divine perspective, that hermeneutic. Like God, you're in control. You perfect. You know. You know in and out all things. Therefore, it is right because you're doing it. Right. But then he said, Well, humans rebelled as they always will. You know, there's always a series of rebellions and people go, No, God, you you can't do it. So we're gonna take it over with there. And then when humans take over, you know, beginning with the kings, and you know, and so on and so forth, things get a little messy. And so Vernodeller would say, you know, once we start looking at, you know, the kings, and and there's there's this weird kind of I'm trying to come up with the word. It's not a synergism, but it's like God responding to human poor actions, poor decision making, poor this. So God is allowing humans, okay, you guys want to lead, you go ahead and do it. Let's see how it works out for you. It doesn't really work out so great. So God is responding to human mistakes and inaction. And he, of course, he he responds perfectly in line. But what Vernon would say is at times, if you go back and read the text, you know, scripturally, it's not necessarily that God has sanctioned it, but God has allowed it based upon the goofiness of human decision and predicament and so on and so forth. So, what I'm saying is Vernadell and again, this is just one hermeneutic. There's many out there. He would divide from a theocratic understanding of the Old Testament, you know, where God was clearly in charge. And then you would have to say, God's in charge. It's right because he's in charge. But then you'd have to see the this other hermeneutic where we have to understand it that he said, okay, you guys go ahead and do it. If you think you have it all in line, you, you, you go ahead. And then it's a corrective measure of, you know, God dealing with that.
0: I think that's that's a great point because when people start bringing up these scenarios, they just sort of go off the bat mm-hmm. and they say, "Oh well, look what God did," and it's almost as if God just sort of pops out of the ether, wipes out a bunch of people, and leaves. And how dare he? Right. But it is almost to every record that we have, inevitable that it is responding. It's not proactive. It's in a response where someone or someone's cultural civilization have come to the point where they have entirely rejected God. If mm-hmm. You know, you look at the flood, and it says the heart of man was continually evil. Every imagination of his heart. And so there was no ability at that point to redeem anything out of society. Mm-hmm. And so God's like, well, it's better that we end this. And human beings never like, we don't ever like to look at ourselves from that perspective mm-hmm. that we could actually go so far that it'd be better off that we weren't here. Yeah, It's funny that we think that about certain human beings and we could list names that people would be like, oh yeah, you know, that person, that person. But it's, it's something human beings in general are all capable of those types of things. And if you know the end of something and what's actually going to happen, then if you're responsible, you're going to take preventative measures. And those might be drastic from a human perspective, mm-hmm. but they're not immoral. They're right. actually made for the purposes of preserving morality because of the corrupt path on which man has, has taken.
1: Yeah, and we could use the analogy, and, and that's great, Luke, but you know, using the analogy of the human body. You know, yeah. as a as a, as an analogy for the larger human race, you know. But look at your own body, and let's say you know we know someone who has cancer, and y- you know you go in and you aggressively try to get it out. You do it through surgery, you do it through radiation, chemotherapy, you know, whatever means you can, and you have to aggressively go out and get that. And I think the analogy may not work out in the nth degree, but. When God sees the human race or the human body, the you know the big picture, there's cancers, there's things that that have the body has created in it yes. it itself, and God deals with those things. We call it evil, we call it sin, we call it a host of other things, and a lot of times that is human derived, you know, human caused incidences in the world, and mm-hmm. so God, you know, in the, like the great physician, he's like, okay, you guys. You said you wanted to be in control and this is what you're doing. And now you're sacrificing, you know, children or you're doing this. And okay, right. y- you know, we—that's not, that's not the road I established. And then, of course, as I pointed out at the very beginning, Christ came, you know, God incarnate, you know, came, the God man and said, okay, guys, this is the road we need to be back on. And he did corrective of how we understand it, and all this stuff. And he's calling people to join him on yes. this road um, of of what we'd call the kingdom of God. And so, you know, all the stuff that people are doing left and right, God deals with it one way or another.
0: That's a great point. I, I love how you unpack that. I think that there's something that we often forget when it comes to God's declarations. We have expectations of God, moral expectations of God that interestingly enough are not things that God himself has revealed that he is going to embody or that he is going to evidence. You know, we have our own and we just assume that our moral faculties are somehow able to make a sound judgment. But in the Old Testament particularly, God's faithfulness according to his own revelation was not judged based on how he did what he did which is what we typically have a problem with, but by being faithful to the covenant that he declared. It's the only way in which we see God binding himself. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you are to judge my faithfulness to whether or not I have kept the covenant as I declared it. And that covenant largely, as we know, even though there were multiple covenants that were progressively revealed, but coming down to his His covenants with Jacob and when Israel becomes a nation and you find you know, in Exodus, the suzerain treaty in Deuteronomy as well, where he's calling heaven and earth to witness, and he's saying, this is what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You never find God violating those covenants. Now, many things happened to many people who stepped across the lines of that covenant because God declared in advance that this is exactly what was going to happen. I'm going to curse those that curse you. But if you violate the covenant, you're going to be removed from the land. You may even suffer death. And he was faithful to those things. His faithfulness to the truth that he revealed about himself is a moral ethic that is Mm inviolable. And he never breaks that. But we always think, well, he did bad things in order to keep his word to Israel. And yet, as we discussed, he did things to keep that covenant happening for one primary purpose. The people of Israel were chosen to bring the Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And this is why the stringent measures were placed on an entire group of people and God guided them with that covenant, mm-hmm. causing many things happening as a result to preserve the people and the covenant that were necessary for the salvation of mankind. Yeah, And, you know, humans just don't do the greater good very well, right? Everybody who says, well, we're going to do this for the greater good. We don't have the proper perspective because the greater good ultimately ends up being well, what i think is best for me mm-hmm. but god's greater good is clarion at this point it was the arrival of jesus christ mm-hmm. on earth and he was faithful to yeah. that and brought it about
1: yeah and, and i love that luke you know that is precisely it you know israel was the conduit the birth canal if you will yes. upon which the messiah was was to come and then now the messiah is calling everyone to the party You know, join me guys, you know, join this work, join this kingdom, join, join, get back on the road that God established, you know, back in Genesis one, you know, Genesis two, this is what God intended. Join me in this, this group effort, what we call the kingdom of God. And how, how do you join this party? Well, you, you turn your life over to God. You know, you receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes. And then you you were born, you know, into a new family. And this family moves forward, you know, ultimately culminating in you know the consummation when Christ returns for his people. And then, then there's there's the true party. Israel was the birth canal upon which the Messiah came. And you're so right. God kept those promises faithful and and He was He was adamant. This is my plan. This is my action, and it has has been birthed. And what we see now is the kingdom of God is growing. Every time a life is changed because of yes. the kingdom of God. A new brick has built in on that wall, that that edifice, that building, and it's just building, building, building. You know, there, there's some there's some great books. Um, you know, I mentioned Vernon Eller, and and he was he was one. Um, there are other books I would encourage people to to read, and, and again. Let's be honest, Luke, these are difficult questions and you right. know we're, we're in, in a half hour time, <laughs> we could only give so much insight. but what we do at Calvary College is we really want people to think on their own to go and and to to really try to get from experts and try to find out what, you know, the Lord is doing and what the Lord would say. But And, and on that note,
0: just before we jump into the thing, in that last interchange between Brian and I, I think we find the answer to that question is that we don't find a mutual opposition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But just as we talked about how Christ's hermeneutic clearly evidenced in the New Testament about how to handle the Old Testament things, we cannot find that the Old Testament portrayal of God is in opposition to the very thing that it brought about, which mm-hmm. was the person of Christ in the flesh here on earth. And so if that is the proper hermeneutic perspective, it reconciles a lot of these things that seem to be outside the guardrails and actually puts them into, oh, well, God had to do that in order for this to happen. And it lets us get a little glimpse of of the heavenly
1: decision-making yeah.
0: that goes into that.
1: Yeah, L- let me just throw out, because I know we're wrapping up here, but yeah. uh, uh, let me just throw out a couple of books by a, a scientist, a, a Christian a man who was, a, a, I think he had three earned PhDs mm-hmm. in hard sciences, but his name was A.E. Wilder Smith. And he's not as well-known in in our modern you know context but back in the 60s, he was very well-respected. They actually did a movie series, um, a documentary series on him. But he has, believe me, scientific books and articles and such, and I'm not suggesting those because most of the time you read him going, what did he just say? <laughs> but he has a book called Why Does God Allow It? And it really is talking about evil, and, and he uses some great analogies. You know, the author is like an architect, you know, the author yeah. of the universe. And he has the blueprints. Well, the blueprints were lost, but with coming of Christ, we, we have the blueprints again. So let's get back on to building the kingdom, this citadel is yeah. that, and so he uses that. Um, he also has one called he who thinks has to believe. Um, and then the last would be, is this a God of love? So yeah. those three, is this a God of love? He who thinks has to believe. And why does God allow it? And the, and what's great with all three of them, they're smaller books. And I really think, you know, coming from a scientist, you know, I think, again, three year PhDs in hard sciences, he gives a unique perspective on this. So I would recommend A.E. Wilder Smith for someone who was one of my heroes. I also recommend his biography since long been, you know, with the Lord, but He's, he's a, a wonderful, unique human being, and those, those books are really helpful for me, particularly in my early Christian walk.
0: I'm gonna check into those myself because I've not read them, Brian, so I'm definitely gonna check those out myself, and I encourage you, our listeners, to do the same. As you can tell, you know we're not shy about the questions we try to tackle. I know we don't have a lot of time to do it, but this is just a taste of what we try to do to facilitate, to help people get answers to their questions, and to encourage you to seek those out yourself. If you have additional questions of your own that you'd like to ask us, I encourage you to send us an email, calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Definitely appreciate your time with us today and listening. And until next time, God bless.